The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Monday, February 10th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You know, we think that talking is easy. When the president reads non-disastrously off a teleprompter, we say, oh, but it was off a teleprompter. Not realizing that reading off a teleprompter isn't that easy. And when the president speaks disastrously, not off a teleprompter, we say, well, that was a disaster. Not realizing that most of the audience in the room seems to have quite liked it. Perhaps we've all become school marms from the 1960s who just don't get this rock and roll. Sometimes we mock a professional speaker when the words he or she uses seem inappropriate to the moment. You're a lying dog-faced pony soldier. You said you were, but you're... That was Joe Biden branding an actual supportive young woman in New Hampshire with an epithet that might cause a duel or an investigation into competency in just about any century before the current one. My premise, speaking isn't easy. Nothing highlights this fact more than they give awards to the people who are the very best at giving speeches, the very best at saying lines that are written down and meant to be spoken. This award is called the Oscar. And sometimes the people who receive the award offer in moments of gratitude a plausible rationale why someone might think they are good at speaking. Maybe they are decorous or they just have a winning personality. Sometimes they're even profound in these moments when they are asked to speak in receiving an award for primary, among other things, speaking. In these moments, you might say, oh, I get it. This is the sort of person who, if you were, say, concerned with the words that you've written being said, well, this is the sort of person who I would trust with the saying of those words. And then there are the other kinds of people. The people who are given awards who seem like they should not be let within 500 yards of a device that could pick up and, God forbid, amplify the human voice. They say things like, we feel entitled to artificially inseminate a cow, and when she gives birth, we steal her baby. Even though her cries of anguish are unmistakable. And then we take her milk that's intended for her calf, and we put it in our coffee and our cereal. And you say, really? This is the moment to decry the domestication of cows? You know, dairy farming has been with us for 9,000 years. That is your illustration of the disconnect between humans and the natural world? Okay, but you know what? That's more a quibble on substance. On presentation, you have Renee Zellweger. And I have to say that um, this past year of conversations celebrating Judy Garland um, across genders and, um, I mean, so I'm sorry, across generations and across um, cultures has, um, has been a really cool reminder that it's, uh, that our heroes unite us. Zellweger, so resplendent as Judy Garland, yet in her Oscar acceptance speech, she tumbled over the rainbow and wound up somewhere in the land of odd. You know, when they unite us, when, when we look to our heroes, we agree, you know, um, and that matters. Uh, Neil Armstrong, Sally Ride, uh, Dolores Fuerta, um, Venus and Serena and Selena. Okay, this was the part of the speech where she just started naming famous people. Bob Dylan, Scorsese, uh, Fred Rogers, Harriet Tubman. Florence Nightingale, Chester A. Arthur, Joe Montana, Sully, Captain Phillips, Peter Scolari, Turtle from Entourage, Thomas the Tank Engine, uh, Railroad Conductors. I think we can agree on them. Uh, We agree on our teachers. 
and we agree on our courageous uh, men and women in uniform who serve. We agree on our first responders and firefighters. Uh, all civil servants, the Coast Guard, the Wonder Twins, did I say Turtle from Entourage? And of course, Judy, Judy Garland, who is known for her... Unique exceptionalism and um, um, inclusivity. Yes, inclusivity. That's the word. That's the word. I was going to say positivity, but inclusivity. It's so good. It's so nice to include inclusivity. It's perfect. It is in many, many ways a perfect speech for our perfect time. Again, this, Renee, a speaker, professional speaker of words, professional communicator of ideas. Granted, other people's ideas, but still. She is being singled out and honored as a vessel of communication. There was no better in her communicative medium in the year 2019. Look, I understand that acting, where you're playing a role and becoming someone else and speaking someone else's words it's a different skill set than speaking your own words but you expect there to be some sort of overlap we've seen some other actors and they can do it like if we had a meeting of nascar drivers and then after the meeting all the nascar drivers left at once and they threw their honda civics into the wrong gear and crashed into the back of the building that would be surprising right i guess what i could say from all of this is humans they never fail to surprise you on the show today, we're out of the woods, we're out of the dark, we're out of the night, the night that Iowa caused, but we are knee-deep in New Hampshire. I present a gist analysis of the unfair attacks that the candidates, and sometimes the press, have been visiting upon each other. But first, a little bit of lavender, a smattering of sage, maybe some myrrh. These are all essential oils, if they and the people who like them do say so themselves. So far, I've been doing fine without essential oils, so... Who the hell says they're essential? Well, they do contain essences of plants, so I guess it's a little bit of a tautology. But don't you sense that essential oils are getting by to some extent on the ambiguity of the word essential? I do. Here to blow the cover of this whole gentle dollop of tinctures and bombs is Maria Konnikova. Essential oils, are they bullshit? You'll never smear yourself with chamomile so carelessly again. I would say in the history of the gist, the most essential guest is Maria Konnikova. And here to talk about the topic of something else that is or may not be essential is Maria Konnikova, author of The Biggest Bluff. And what we're talking about are essential oils. How essential are they? In fact, what does the adjective even mean? Hello, Maria. Hello, Mike. How are you? I'm well. I think that my understanding of essential oils has changed within the last three years based on a very simple sentence that the essential in essential oils isn't a synonym for very important. <laughs> it's a synonym for, I guess, the essence of something, the quidness, the core and the root. The quidness. The that quidness. Is, that, you, you just pulled that one right out. That was good. I'm a that quid pro quo. Yes. So what are essential oils claiming to be? Well, first, let's talk about what they are. Mm. So they're oils from plants, and they're mostly terpenes, terpenoids, and aromatic <laughs> compounds. Mm. I can see why they went with essential yes. instead of terpenoids. <laughs> and they come from all parts of the plant. So they can come from the flower, they can come from the seeds, they can come from the bark, the stem, the leaf, the root, the fruit. 
Did I just rhyme? I think I, I, I think just, so. I think I yeah. just rhymed. You just went on a plant rhyming scheme. I just, I absolutely yeah. did. A plant rant, if you will. <laughs> and they're extracted in any number of ways from the plants. So it can be through distillation, through solvent extraction, through pressure, steam, lots of different ways. Mm-hmm. So you get those essential oils out. And we've been doing this for thousands of years. And... The original way to use it was to preserve food. Oh. Way back when, in Egypt, around 4500 BCE, the Egyptians were using them for preservation, but also for cosmetics, because the Egyptians actually used a lot of stuff for cosmetics. We've found this in many of that bullshit segments where something was suddenly comes up in Egypt yeah. as a cosmetic. And they used it for ointments, too, for medicines, because actually what plants do with essential oils oftentimes is protection. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes these are oils that are actually used to help a plant protect itself against predators. So it makes sense that it would be used as both a preservative and as a medicine, because if it helps the plant, then presumably, right. if done correctly, it could also help humans. And then in China and in India in 3000 to 2000 BC, they were used for aromatic oils. So just because they smelled nice. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is how kind of they came to be. And we don't actually see the term essential oil used until the 16th century. I do think, though, that if they're used in pharmaceuticals, if they're used in food, we don't think of them, or at least I don't think of them like I do with you go to a place that has soft enya music playing, you lie down on a uh, softish surface, and they put essential oils between yes. on the bridge of your nose. Like, I think that those are cor- a little different. This is correct. Yeah. This is correct. And they are used in all of those different ways, mm-hmm. and they're regulated quite differently depending on how they're used. Oh, I didn't know there was any regulation with the lady who put the lavender on my nose. There isn't. Oh. Oh, my. (laughs) Unregulated. However, if that same lavender is put into food, Uh then all of a sudden we've got the FDA coming on to see if it's okay for use as a preservative. Right? So Yes. Um, So it depends. But some of them are things that, like, so when I thought about essential oils when I started researching this, I was thinking exactly about, the same thing yes. that you said, like aromatherapy. Aromatherapy. Yep, and massage therapy mm-hmm. and all of that. And then you realize that there are things like cinnamon oil that have been around forever that I didn't even actually quite realize existed, that we have cinnamon oil. Right. Right. And that used to be used as a breath freshener. That makes sense. Also to aid with digestion as mm-hmm. an anti-venom to reduce intestine and kidney inflammations uh-huh. as a diuretic to remove facial blemishes. And I love this. At one time, cinnamon oil was actually worth more than gold. Really? Yes. Wow. At one time in history. Now we try to get at like, what do they actually do? That's right. And how do they actually regulate things? Or so, if they actually work. If they actually yes. work. Yes. Right. A lot of the stuff that people like about essential oils is that they're quote unquote natural, right? I know. And we've talked about this so many times yeah. that people equate natural and good and they yes. should not. Well, because unless they're poisons, doing tons of coke. Yes, because poisons <laughs> are also natural. Let an arsenic, people. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. All of that's natural. <laughs> essential oils. Exactly. Arsenic. Exactly. Yeah. Cyanide. Yeah. Yep. And how they're used. So the FDA regulation, I think, is actually absolutely crucial mm-hmm. because as we've talked about in the past, if something is not actually labeled as food or as a medicine or 
making medicinal claims, then all of a sudden it becomes something like a dietary supplement. Right. And we know that that's actually completely not regulated. And so you could be buying something that you think is this essential oil, but really it's a bunch of other crap mixed together and you have no way of knowing. Or it is the essential oil and the essential oil is essentially crap. crap. Crap, if you're lucky, mm-hmm. right? Because sometimes we well, even especially have... the ones that are you know meant to be used as a, right. a diuretic or <laughs> so. Sometimes or they might have yeah. they might have side effects that you don't like. Yeah. So here's what I found out about essential oils: it's actually incredibly difficult to study how effective they are because a lot of different things affect effectiveness. Right. So how is it extracted? Um, That is going to actually affect the quality and the composition. So the person who says, oh, this is 100% lavender oil, right? How do they actually extract that lavender oil? That's going to matter. So if you want the composition to be constant, it needs to be from the same organ of the same plant on the same soil with the same conditions and season. So when I was starting to look at scientific studies, they were like, look, it's really difficult to actually figure out what's effective because unless we have medical grade oil Mm -hmm. that is being basically is being extracted under very specific conditions that are basically laboratory conditions we can't know whether we're testing apples and oranges or apples and apples you know if if you can figure out workarounds why not if you can dilute it why not? And nobody really cares. So there are some studies that have been done on the medical okay. uses of them. Tell me. So sleep disturbance. Yes. Japan is actually really big into studying the use of some of these for uh, sleep disturbance. So if someone has trouble sleeping, can ah. we actually use... So this is like the aromatherapy. Right. Can we use essential oils to help them? Because the idea is that scent can trigger certain parts of the brain. And we know that that's true. There's a lot of mm-hmm. psychology behind, you know, memory and smells, smells and moods. So there's a lot there. So they're saying, can essential oils, basically, can we calm people down, make them sleep better? The evidence is inconclusive. There have been studies with Japanese elderly, with patients with dementia. And it seems like sometimes it helps and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> so inconclusive. But it didn't yeah. seem like it actually ever was negative. So if you want to give it a shot, why not? Some of the best, actually, evidence I found was in arthritis. So there are turmeric essential oils. And there was a study that was done that was pretty good from the University of Arizona. And they, but this was not on humans, this was on rats, because mm-hmm. it's difficult to do a study like this in humans before you know whether this stuff is safe and how well it works. Yeah. But in rats, ah. it seemed to... Um, help with joint swelling. Oh, it did? Yeah. Oh, I thought that you'd stop after rats. But hold on. However, the amount that was necessary to help with the joint swelling was also associated with significant morbidity and mortality. Oh, okay. So, because I was going to say, if the, if when a study stops with the rats and you get significant results, usually it's because bad so things So here, it stopped with the rats because yeah. the rats started dying. Yeah. And then when they gave it to them orally, mm-hmm. it wasn't toxic, but it also didn't work. Right. So it seems like that was that was not necessarily great. And the authors concluded these results do not support the isolated use of TEO for arthritis treatment, but instead identify potential safety concerns in All vertebrates right. exposed to it. So 
One of the things that people are exploring, though, is some essential oils make skin more permeable. Mm-hmm. And so they think that maybe it could be useful for drug delivery. Yeah. So when you're actually like when you're being treated and you need to get a lot of IVs, a right. lot of injections, that it might help with that. But the things that seem to have been effective aren't in humans. They can be effective against bacteria and some have antimicrobial properties, like the things mm-hmm. that they help the plant with, yeah. right? Help keep insects away, help keep diseases away. Potentially, if you see like a lavender oil as part of your, you know, hand washing, maybe that's helpful. But we don't have that much data on actual effectiveness with things like aromatherapy or massage. They might smell nice, mm-hmm. but if it's stuff like turmeric oil, I'd probably be careful because that's the one that was associated with increased death in rats. But the bottom line is there's actually not that much like good data on any of this because it's so hard to control for quality and to figure out how do we get things that we can actually compare. It doesn't actually seem that difficult to get good quality essential oil. It just seems that people don't necessarily always do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think the fact that they some of them have no ill effects, plus yeah. we all love the placebo effect, yes. plus they're usually associated with a nice quiet room with Enya music and they yeah. smell nice. I mean, this all adds up to, unless you're killing a rat, why not do it if you like your half hour with essential oils? Well, I would say yes and no. Uh-huh. The no is that if it didn't make any medical claims, mm-hmm. if it didn't say, you know, this will help with arthritis or this will help with, you know, whatever it is, then it wasn't regulated at all. Right. So as long as you know that that's actually the exact essential oil that you think you're getting, there's no ill effect. But there have actually been cases, and I read this paper that was not very nice about essential oils that were basically from weird plants that sounded cool and they caused rashes and allergies and skin sensitivities. Interesting. You know, this stuff is going on your skin. Yes. And just because it's natural doesn't mean non-toxic, non-allergenic, non-any of this. I mean, I personally am actually allergic to a lot of this stuff. Oh, Um, I'm glad you admitted that. So, yeah. Well, I have an incredibly bad allergy to tea tree oil. So if anyone uh, touches me with tea tree oil, I will break out in hives. Right, especially if you took that oil beforehand that made your skin more permeable. That (laughs) would be the uh, terrible one-two punch for you. Right, that that I'm not quite sure what will happen to me, but it might might involve an emergency room. All right, so let's play it. (laughs) Essential oils, when properly applied to the body, can have a a health-giving effect on us. Is that bullshit? Well, it's probably not going to hurt you as long as it's proper essential oils Mm -hmm. properly applied. But that's a lot of propers in a sentence that should really just be a simple sentence. But I think some of the other claims that we're making, like, you know, we didn't even talk about the, the claims that essential oils make. I mean, they do make all of these claims that they will help you sleep, they will relax you, that they have all these medical properties, that they will, you know, help you with inflammation, help you with this, help you with that. And depending on the essential oil, the claims can get actually pretty inflated. And for those claims, there's really no scientific evidence whatsoever. Maria Konnikova helps us play Is That Bullshit from time to time. That is a health-giving and wondrous effect upon the body, I have to say. Thank you for coming. Oh, she is the author of The Biggest Bluff. If I didn't mention that, I need to. Thank you so much for coming by, Maria. Thank you, Mike. And now, the spiel. 
the New Hampshire primary is nigh. Nigh, I say. And the candidates are going at each other as much as they are going against the orange specter that wafts over us all. (sighs) Taking that wafting. If you know me, you probably don't know who I'm voting for because I know me and I haven't decided who I'm voting for. But I do think the best way to do my job is not to plant a stake in the ground, but to keep as open a mind as possible. But an open mind does not mean a non-critical mind. So in this time, when the candidates are criticizing each other, I think I can offer a service to you. I can weigh in as judge or referee or just historian to put some of these charges in a more helpful perspective. Let us begin with a high-profile attack ad. It was Joe Biden criticizing Pete Buttigieg as having a record. Pete, this is Biden's charge. Pete has a record that does not hold up to Biden's own. As the ad says, let's compare. When President Obama called on him, Joe Biden helped lead the passage of the Affordable Care Act, which gave health care to 20 million people. And when parkgoers called on Pete Buttigieg, he installed decorative lights under bridges, giving citizens of South Bend colorfully illuminated rivers. Both Vice President Biden and former Mayor Buttigieg have taken on tough fights. Under threat of a nuclear Iran, Joe Biden helped to negotiate the Iran deal. And under threat of disappearing pets, Buttigieg negotiated lighter licensing regulations on pet chip scanners. Okay, stop it there for a second. I like lights under bridges. Colorful bridges are nice. And pet chip scanners, they can help you find a lost pet. If you ever lost a pet, you'd really love one of those chips. And right now, to this day, I would bet that most of the chips in those pets are still in place. But you know what's not in place? The Iran deal. Let's go on. Both Vice President Biden and former Mayor Pete have helped shape our economy. Joe Biden helped save the auto industry, which revitalized the economy of the Midwest and led the passage and implementation of the Recovery Act, saving our economy from a depression. Pete Buttigieg revitalized the sidewalks of downtown South Bend by laying out decorative brick. And both Biden and Buttigieg have made hard decisions. Despite pressure from the NRA, Jill Biden passed the assault weapons ban through Congress. Well, guess what? The bricks are still there. The assault weapons ban went away. Listen, I will definitely stipulate that Biden has achieved more than Buttigieg has. He has had more important positions. He has affected more people. He was able to do more. Plus, when Biden was working, he had that awesome, aggressive strings music underneath him. Very inspiring. But Buttigieg, he just had that dopey, oh, let's put chips and pets or bricks and pets or chips and sidewalks. There, it's Indiana. He had that music going, so you're not going to get anything good done that way. But I do find it interesting that the two big accomplishments or two of the big accomplishments that Biden bragged about have since been reversed. Also, neither were initiatives that he is known for, uh, shall we say, running point on. I mean, he was there. He didn't orchestrate the Iran deal. But yes, again, Biden has more accomplishments. I do not think voters are confused about this point. I do think the ad is not the best illustration of this point. And I do think it's over the top and the music and the narration and the writing won't really hurt Buttigieg. In fact, they gave him the opportunity to go on all the Sunday shows and indignantly claim that people who live in the cities the size of South Bend don't appreciate their concerns being turned into a punchline. And I think he scored a point with that. Anyway, Bernie Sanders was lighting into Buttigieg as he has been for taking the donations of billionaires. Here's Bernie on Face the Nation. 
life of our country. And by the way, we're going to contrast our views with Mayor Buttigieg. Uh, and one of the areas of contrast, to be honest with you, uh, is that last count, he has about 40 billionaires who are contributing to his campaign, the heads of the CEOs of the large pharmaceutical industries and the insurance companies and so forth. Buttigieg's response is, but without billionaires, how am I going to afford decorative brick? No, it's, hey, we'll take money from lots of people, lots of people who agree with us and think we could beat Trump. It's a tiny percent of the overall money I take. And the point is, we're trying to defeat Trump. We'll take money to do that. Here is my analysis. This is a great political argument. It really is. I'm not kidding. Would that all political arguments were like this? No one's lying. No one's being dishonest. I think voters really get the issue. You either think that taking donations from the wealthiest will align you with the wealthiest, or you think, well, that'd be pretty stupid tactically not to take the money from people who want to give you money in the cause of defeating Trump. Voters, what I think they do is they project themselves into the situation and ask themselves, what would I do if I were running? And then they vote accordingly. I think everyone who is actually inclined to be a Bernie voter responds to Bernie's message, and everyone who sees the world as Buttigieg does responds to his message. They're both making their message well, good. This is a good political argument. Here's another less good political argument. Both of the female candidates left in the race are comparing themselves to each other in one regard. Here we go. This is from the January debate. It's a line that has often been repeated and riffed on these last few days in New Hampshire. Look at the men on this stage. Collectively, they have lost 10 elections. The only people on this stage who have won every single election that they've been in are the women, Amy so and me. That was Elizabeth Warren. Fact check true. But I got to say context. Klobuchar's winning streak is more impressive. It's longer. It's more varied, and it's in a state without a huge Democratic advantage. In 1998, Klobuchar was elected DA in the biggest county in Minnesota. She ran again unopposed. Then she won the Senate seat in Minnesota in 2006. It was a fairly big win, but she deserves credit for that. And then she defended it two more times without a serious challenge. So she's 5-0 and in two somewhat contested contests. Warren, on the other hand, has won two Senate elections, and the first was against incumbent Republican senator from Massachusetts, Scott Brown. Now, he was an incumbent, but he was a Republican senator from Massachusetts. So I would score her 2-0 and with one close election. Also, let's note that if Warren loses in New Hampshire and doesn't come in second, it will be the first time in the history of the New Hampshire primary where an elected official, uh, an official was elected statewide in Massachusetts, fails to win or come in second. In 1980, Teddy Kennedy lost to incumbent President Jimmy Carter. In 2008, Mitt Romney came in second to John McCain. Those were, in fact, the only times when a Massachusetts politician did not win in Iowa on the Republican or the Democratic side, and the winners were John Kerry, Paul Songus, Michael Dukakis, and Mitt back in 2012. Those were times when Massachusetts politicians all won in New Hampshire. So this result could be the worst for someone of Warren's ilk. And next and last, we have not a bit of candidate on candidate flack, but the old gray lady on the Yang gang. The article is titled, Yang's run is most baffling to people who work for him, which is weird because I know people who worked with him and for him and they praise him highly, but that's okay. Let's put that aside. Let's hear the charges. The Andrew Yang on the presidential debate stage, the one who spoke about the need for more women in leadership and the lack of racial diversity among top tier Democratic candidates was the same person they'd once worked for. 
But for some of his former employees, it seemed almost impossible to believe how far he'd come since a moment a few years ago when he told everyone at his nonprofit about a horror movie he'd read about. How far had he come? Let us delve into the transformation of, I suppose, this once troglodytic Andrew Yang. Here we go. Mr. Yang had been struck by an article about the film, The Babadook, which was written and directed by a woman and explores themes of motherhood. Movies like The Babadook, he told his employees, were in short supply and thus filled a gap in the market. If only more women were given opportunities, he continued, echoing an argument that he made publicly around the time in a 2015 essay, they would identify different problems than men and similarly help address market demands with their endeavors. The article continues, members of the mostly female team recalled exchanging glances to some It felt as if Mr. Yang were discovering sexism for the first time and explaining it to them. Oh my God. Andrew Yang had an insight about sexism, was inspired to do something about it, and vowed to help the problem. How dare he? The part about what it seemed like to some members of the team, this anecdote is an inference about the timing of Yang's awakening. They assume he's woke but he overslept. Later, the article says, quote, in his life before politics, they said they saw in Mr. Yang a man who was smart, had good ideas, was a persuasive speaker, and was occasionally inspiring. But he sometimes stumbled in his dealings with race and gender. Yes, he sometimes, so I guess he's a human being who's paying attention in the years 2015 to 2020. We often say, look, no one's demanding perfection. But if the claim is that he sometimes stumbled in his dealings with race and gender, what would the requirement be such that that isn't used to describe you? Perfection. He never stumbled on the most sensitive issues of our age. At another point, the Times writes, several former employees described being struck by the awkward and sometimes aloof way they said Mr. Yang talked about race. Well, again, let's think about this. What would be the contrast of talking about race awkwardly? Would it be good if the Times were to write? People report that Andrew Yang always talked about racial issues with dead certainty. He was 100% assured of himself whenever the topic of race came up. That would be great, huh? And what's the aloofness? Well, it seems to be his questioning if Asian Americans should count as diversity within the space of the tech nonprofit he was running. Um, Here's the quote. He also confirmed that he told his team it should not herald the diversity of fellowship classes if the diversity amounted mostly to, quote, a bunch of Asian Americans who are overrepresented in the space. But what is the right answer to this? Is it clearly yes? Is it clearly no? Is it diversity? Isn't? Seems to be taking into account context. What's the answer to that question uh, that doesn't get a New York Times article about how aloof you are? Or is it just to have never asked the question? Is that the better thing? Look, there are things in this article that are factual, that belong in print. Uh, Two former employees allege gender discrimination that has been reported elsewhere. Yang deserves all the scrutiny that a presidential candidate gets. But as a reader, not a proponent of any candidate, just as a reader, I felt like my time was wasted and I was thrust into the position of having to agree with a subjective inference of a possible interpretation of the timing of what everyone agrees is the right opinion to have. For all the candidates who have to suffer the shade delivered by media or other campaigns or Donald Trump, we got to say the following phrase. It comes with the territory. It's battle testing, and this 
all will be a battle ahead of you. But for we, the voters and the news consumers, I do wish that the arguments were stress tested, at least to a degree that the arguers demand of their rivals. And that's it for today's show. Priscilla Alabi is the GIST's associate producer. She would like to thank Eleanor Roosevelt, Underdog, Jackie Robinson, and Snuggles the Fabric Softener Bear. Daniel Schrader is the GIST's producer, and he defers to the heroes. Colonel Vinman, Crispus Attucks, Captain Kangaroo, Matthew Lesko, who's the guy with all the question marks on his suit from the infomercials, that guy. The GIST. I stand on the shoulders of greatness. Annie Oakley, Charles Oakley, Charles Barkley, Scott Bayo, Al Molinari, Jesus, and Connie Selica. Umpur de and thanks for listening.